Will you turn with me to the book of Hebrews this morning? Hebrews chapter 1. You can find this in the Pew Bible, page 692. 692. Hebrews chapter 1. We are going to read the entire chapter this morning, uh, but we will be focusing specifically on verses 10 through 14. But if you have found your place in your copy of God's word, if you'll stand with me as we honor the reading of his word, as we look at Hebrews chapter 1, we will begin our reading this morning in verse 1. Long ago, At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Father, I ask that you would, through the power of your spirit, teach us from your word. Open our eyes, help us to understand And God, we long to see Christ in all of his beauty. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Who is Jesus Christ? Answer. Unlike any other human, Jesus lived in heaven as a spirit person before he was born on earth. He was God's first creation, and he helped in the creation of all other things. He is the only one created directly by Jehovah and is thus called God's only begotten son. Jesus served as God's spokesman, so he is also called the word. That's what the Jehovah's Witnesses say. For Jehovah's Witnesses, Jesus is the Son of God in the sense that God created him in a special way before he created anything else. And being the first of all of God's creation, Jesus then creates everything else. Jesus is not eternal, nor is he co-equal with the Father, nor is he the second person of the Trinity. He is the greatest of all God's creation, but in the end, he is still a creature How about this one? Who is Jesus? Answer, we believe Jesus is the Son of God, the Father, and as such such, inherited powers of Godhood and divinity from his Father, including immortality, the capacity to live forever. 
While he walked the dusty road of Palestine as a man, he possessed the powers of a god and ministered as one having authority, including power over the elements and even power over life and death. The Mormon answer can be a little trickier because they agree that Jesus is the Son of God and that he is divine. So we have to dig just a little bit deeper and listen to what Joseph Smith says. God himself was once as we are now and is an exalted man. He was once a man like us. God himself, the father of us all, dwelt on an earth the same as Jesus Christ himself did. When Mormons say that Jesus is God's son, they mean that he is a son in the same way in which all fathers have sons. Not that Jesus is the eternal second person of the Trinity, but rather God the Father had a divine son through natural processes, and he is divine because he is God's son. But what does the Bible teach? And particularly for us this morning, what does the book of Hebrews teach? Who is Jesus? In verses 1 through 4, we have already seen eight descriptions of Jesus. He is the heir of all things, through whom all things were created. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He has made purification for sins and has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And he has inherited a name that is better than the angels. And now in verses 5 through 14, the author shows how Jesus is superior or how he is better than the angels, demonstrating from the Old Testament scriptures that the descriptions of verses 1 through 4 are in fact accurate of Jesus. And last week we saw how in verses 5 through 9, Jesus is the heir of all things. He is better than the angels in that he is the promised Davidic Messiah. In his incarnation and humanity, Jesus is the Son of God by his work as the promised King of Israel who inherits all of the promises given to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Jesus is the one to whom all kings and all nations will submit. And nothing like this was ever said to angels. Instead, the verses before us tell us that that God has made his angels servants, and he commands them to worship the Son. Today, in verses 10 through 14, we're going to continue to see how Jesus is better than the angels. But as last week we focused especially on Jesus' humanity, today, in verses 10 through 14, we're going to pull on a thread that was introduced in verse 8, where the psalmist and the the writer of Hebrews quotes the psalmist as saying, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. We're going to pull on that thread In its original context, if you remember last week, its original context, Psalm 45 was addressed to a human king. But in its ultimate fulfillment, it is praising the Messiah who, in the New Testament, is revealed to be not only truly man, but truly and fully God. And that's what we're going to see in verses 10 through 14 this morning. We're going to see that that Jesus is superior to the angels in his very being. He is not like them, nor is he like any other creature. The Jehovah's Witnesses would say that, that Jesus is superior to the angels because he is the first and greatest of creation, and everything else was created by him. The Mormons would say that Jesus is divine because his divine father had a son. But our passage today, it simply will not allow for either of these interpretations. What we're going to see is that Jesus is superior to the angels because he is Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. 
Uh, there's one observation that it's necessary for us to look at before we get to our text. In the Old Testament, there are frequent appearances of the angel of the Lord. And it is my conviction that whenever we see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, what we are actually seeing is the Lord Jesus prior to his incarnation. The angel of the Lord, it, 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 it is my Strong conviction is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who is appearing in bodily form in the Old Testament. But how does my assertion that the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is the second person of the Trinity, how does it not undermine what I've already said about the distinction and superiority of Jesus over against the angels? Well, we have to, we have to understand that the word angel, it literally can be translated as messenger. It's, it's not necessarily a type of creature, rather it is a function or a role. So in Matthew chapter 11, verse 9, John the Baptist is called, in the Greek, an angel. Some of the disciples of Jesus in Luke chapter 9, verse 52 are called angels. Not angelic beings, supernatural beings, but messengers. The spies sent to Rahab are called angels. Revelation chapter 2 and 3 have angels to the seven churches, and these are questioned, who, who are these? And so angel does not necessarily mean a type of, of spiritual creature so much as a messenger. And so the angel of the Lord is the messenger of the Lord in the New Testament. And also notice that he is the angel of the Lord. He is the messenger of God in the Old Testament. And if you'll pay attention to his appearances you'll see that he is frequently addressed as Yahweh. Two quick examples. We don't have time to spend looking in detail at these, but Exodus chapter 3, verses 2 through 6. It says, And the angel of the Lord, there he is, the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. This is the burning bush account. And the angel of the Lord is in the bush. Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the, why the bush is not burned. Now, verse 4 says, when the Lord, or when Yahweh, saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. Who's in the bush? It's the angel of the Lord. But who is the angel of the Lord? It is Yahweh himself. And when the when Yahweh calls from the burning bush and he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, it tells us that Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Another example is found in Exodus chapter 13. This is the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud that goes before Israel in the Exodus Exodus chapter 13, verses 21 and 22, it says, The Lord, Yahweh, went before Israel by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So who is in the pillar of fire and in the pillar of, of cloud? It is Yahweh. But then we go over to, to chapter 14, verse 19, and it says this, Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Who is in the pillar? In chapter 13, it's Yahweh. In chapter 14, it is the angel. Who is it? Verse 21 says, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and Yahweh drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. 
The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, Yahweh in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for Yahweh fights for them against the Egyptians. Who is it in the pillar? Well... It's Yahweh. Yahweh who is appearing as the angel of Yahweh. This is a fascinating topic. I, I, I would love to spend more time on it. Maybe, maybe one day we'll, we'll spend some time looking at the angel of the Lord. But I would encourage you to study it more, especially in Genesis and Exodus, though he's also in Numbers and Joshua and Judges. The angel of the Lord appears and he speaks as God. The angel of the Lord appears and he is called God. He is to be obeyed. He forgives. What do the religious leaders in the New Testament say? Only God can forgive sins. He is worshipped. He is distinct from the angels and he is treated as superior to the angels even in the Old Testament because he is the God of the Old Testament. So who is this one who is superior to angels, and why does it matter? Last week, we saw he's the promised Davidic Messiah. We focused specifically on the incarnation and the humanity of Jesus. Today, we're going to look at verses 10 through 14, and I thought that I would divide this into three points, but upon further reflection, decided on only two. Two points this morning. Jesus is the one true God. And Jesus is glorified along with God. That's who he is. He is the one true God, and he is the one who is glorified along with God. Now, why does this matter? Why do we even need to look at this in, in detail? Why do we need to do a deep dive into these, these verses to, to understand this? Because if what the author of Hebrews says is true that he is the one true God, that he is glorified along with God, that he is superior to the angels because he is in his being superior because he is God. If all of this is true, then Jesus is worthy of all of your worship and obedience. This is no small thing. If he is who these verses say he is, then he is the greatest being who has ever or whoever will exist. This is not an intellectual exercise. I, I don't want to simply fill your head with knowledge so that you can win Bible trivia night. I want you to see who Jesus is in these verses so that you can respond to him correctly. If what our passage asserts is true, then to be truly wise would be to crave to know and be known by Jesus more than you crave your next meal. To crave him more than you crave your next breath. True wisdom is to leave off every earthly pursuit, every temporary pleasure, and run hard after Christ until you possess him. Because to simply read the words on this page, but to never truly know this person is to forever miss out on the greatest treasure in the universe. And having missed out on knowing this Jesus when you are in agony in the fires of hell, your greatest torment will be in knowing that this treasure exists and that you could have possessed it and enjoyed him forever. But in your foolishness, you considered other things to be more important than Jesus. And you've lost out on him forever. These verses matter because if they're true, to reject or to ignore this Jesus is to be the worst kind of fool in the universe. So who is this Jesus and why is he superior to the angels? 
Verses 5 through 9 tell us that he is superior to the angels because he is the promised Davidic Messiah and all the promises are given to him. Verses 10 through 12, he is superior to the angels because he is the one true God. Remember verses 2 through 3. He's the one through whom everything was created. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And now our author is going to back up these assertions by citing Psalm 102. Verses 10 through 12 are the author of Hebrews citing Psalm 102. So keep your place in Hebrews and let's turn to Psalm 102. And let's see what's going on here. We won't read the entire thing since Jay read it for us earlier. But what you need to understand is as we see how Hebrews is quoting Psalm 102 is see who Psalm 102 is addressed to. Who is the psalmist crying out to in Psalm 102? We see it in verse 1. Hear my cry, O Lord. Your text probably has Lord all in caps. That's not a typo. That is the English designation for the name of God in the Old Testament. This verse literally reads, Hear my prayer, O Yahweh. Yahweh is the divine name. This, when God appears to Moses, he reveals his name to him. My name is Yahweh. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. This is my covenant name that I will be remembered by. I am Yahweh. And so Psalm 102 is a cry to the God of the Old Testament. Yahweh. Now this is interesting because... In Hebrews chapter 1, our author applies this psalm that is addressed to Yahweh to Jesus. He says, this psalm is applied to Jesus, the Christ. How can this be? How can we jump from Psalm 102, hear my prayer, O Yahweh, to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 10, that says, You, O Lord. I think that we see that that there's a link. The, The author of Hebrews is an expert in understanding the Old Testament. We need to read the book of Hebrews so that we can understand how to read our Old Testament because we do a terrible job at reading our Old Testament. But he's showing us, he's demonstrating how we need to read our Old Testament. Look at verse 12. I hope you have your finger in Hebrews because we're going to flip back and forth so we can compare it. If this was a a Wednesday night, I'd have a handout for you. Psalm 102, verse 12. But you, O Yahweh, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. If you notice the verses from Psalm 45 that the author of Hebrews quotes in Hebrews 1.8. He quotes from Psalm 45 that says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. In Psalm 45, it is a psalm to the Messiah, to the Davidic king. And it said, Your throne will be forever. Now the writer of Hebrews, he says, Wait a second. Psalm 102 says in verse 12, But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. There's a link between the previously cited Old Testament passages in Hebrews and Psalm 102. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Psalm 102, but you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. There are themes that are picked up in the passages that he's already quoted in Psalm chapter 2 and Deuteronomy chapter 32. The nations and the kings will fear you. Psalm 102, Nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. 
That's Psalm 2. There's salvation and restoration of Zion. Verse 16, Yahweh builds up Zion. He appears in his glory. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. This is Deuteronomy chapter 32, the restoration of Zion, the restoration and salvation of Israel. And then verse 18, let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. The writer of Hebrews, he says, long ago God spoke to our fathers through the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us. We are the generation to come. This has been written for us so that we might praise the Lord. And so the author of Hebrews, he draws all of these Old Testament passages together and he says, it's Yahweh, the God of Israel, who saves his people. It's it's to Yahweh that all the nations will come. It's to Yahweh, it's it's through Yahweh that, that Zion will be built up. And all of these things are going to be for a future generation to see all the culmination of it and see how it, how it is fulfilled. And he says, how does God do this? He does it through the Messiah. He does it through the promised King of Israel. And so he's, he's bringing all of it together. He's seeing all of God's purposes that have been promised in the Old Testament and how these are, these are moving towards a, a culminating point. And he says God spoke all these things to our, our fathers through the prophets and, and they're, they're seeing it in this mist. They're seeing this fog and it's, it's like this mystery novel and you're getting clues as you're going along. But now God has spoken to us in his, his final way in his ultimate way, and it is through his Son. And in the mystery and the purposes of God, he brings these two ideas together. The King was promised, and the King will come to save. And it is through him that Yahweh saves his people. The Messiah comes, he unites these ideas into one person. The Lord Jesus, who is both truly a man and who is also truly Yahweh. So he looks at Psalm 102 and he says, this is a prayer that's directed to Yahweh, but we know that this is ultimately about Jesus. Your throne, O Lord, endures forever. You, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. When you read Psalm 102, you need to recognize that God accomplishes all of these things through the second person of the Trinity, Jesus the Christ, who is Yahweh. That's what our author does, and that's what he's inviting you to do. He wants you to read your Old Testament like a Christian. Like I said, we're really bad about doing this. We're really bad about doing this. But this is what the author is doing. He takes this psalm that's addressed to Yahweh, and he says, this is really about Jesus And this is the unified voice of the New Testament. As they take Old Testament passages that are about Yahweh, and then they see how they all apply to Jesus. Joel chapter 2, verse 32 is quoted in Romans 10, 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Old Testament, Yahweh. New Testament, it's the the Lord Jesus Jesus. Everyone who calls on his name will be saved. Jeremiah chapter 9 verse 24 is quoted in 1 Corinthians 1.31. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Isaiah 45 verse 23 quoted in Philippians chapter 2 verses 10 through 11. Every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
Jesus is not this separate figure that, that drops into the New Testament. He is all over the Old Testament and all of the scriptures are about him. And so that's how the author of Hebrews, he can look at, at the Old Testament. He can see how, how all of these passages are about Jesus. And he can say, look at Jesus. He is superior to the angels. There's no question about it. There, there should be no, no nagging thoughts in the back of our mind. He is superior to the angels because he is Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. He is the one true and living God. Look at some of the attributes that Psalm 102 quoted here in Hebrews chapter 1 asserts are about Jesus. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same. And your years will have no end. What are the attributes that are, are given to Jesus here? He is the creator you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. The heavens are the work of your hands. Genesis 1. In the beginning, God, Father, Son, Spirit, created the heavens and the earth. Jesus is not absent from these stories. He is the God who's spoken of in these stories. He is the creator. He laid the foundation of the earth. He spread out the heavens. Not just that, he's pre-existent. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. There was a beginning, and it wasn't when you came into existence. You're pre-existent. There's never been a time when the Son has not existed. He has always existed. Going along with that, he is self-existent. The theological term here is aseity. It means he needs nothing. He is dependent on nothing. See, he didn't lay the foundation of the earth in the beginning because he had some kind of need. He didn't need the heavens. They perish, but you remain. You don't need them. You are self-existent. You have nothing that you, you are dependent upon. You are you in your being. And that can't be said of anything else. There are, are no creatures that this can be said of. No angels. There are no spiritual beings that this can be said of other than the eternal self-existing God. It's hard for us to wrap our brains around it because we are created. We, we are not pre-existent. We come into being at a particular time. We're not self-existent. Some of your, your stomachs are grumbling right now that reminds you you're not self-existent. You are dependent upon things. There is nothing that, this, that, that God is dependent upon. There is nothing that the Son of God needs. He exists in his being. In him is life. But the two big attributes that are laid out here in verses 10 through 12 is that the Son is immutable. This simply means he doesn't change. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same. This is anticipating chapter 13, verse 8. 
where the author says, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. How can this be the case? It's because he is God. He is a God who never changes. There, there is no change within him. And this is not just good news. This is great news. We don't think about this nearly enough. The fact that, that God doesn't change. That is not just some theological idea for, for guys who, who sit around piles of books and do nothing but talk about theology. This is for you. You need to know that it is great news that God never changes. Because God has made promises. And those promises include salvation for all who trust in his son. And if God changes, you have no assurance that one day God is not going to say, you know what, I'm going to change the rules of the game. And so God, in Malachi says, I never change, therefore Israel, you are not consumed. <laughs> that's good news. That, that's, that's, that's news that should put a smile on your face this morning. My God never changes. Not the same for the God of the Mormons. where they believe that God once was a man, but now he's a glorified man. That's change. Our God does not change. The fifth attribute that is laid out here in Psalm 102 is that Jesus is eternal. Your years will have no end. No beginning, no end. He never changes. He has always existed. And he will always and forever be God. These are attributes ascribed to God in the Old Testament. Now they are attributed explicitly to Jesus. And there, are, there is not a single attribute here that can be applied to a creature. The, the very concept of eternality and self-existence means that he must be uncreated. Brothers and sisters, this is a perfect passage to use when talking to a Jehovah's Witness. It, it can be so daunting to talk to, to some of these, these other religions when they, they knock on your door. I, I, I always tell people, if, if Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon knocks on your door... Open the door and talk to them. You've got lost people that are coming to your door. What more could you, could you possibly ask for? And you can take them right here. Their version of the Bible is distorted in many places to diminish the truth about Jesus. But I checked in my copy of their New World Translation. And Hebrews 1 verses 10 through 12 read the same. Take them to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, and show them this is no creature. This is no created being. You may think that he's even the most superior of the, being, of the created beings. No, no, no. This is eternal, self-existent, unchanging creator, God. Show them that Jesus has never been created. He is Yahweh. He is the one true God. Notice also in these verses that, that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. But that one day he's going to bring history to its intended end. And the picture here is of changing dirty clothes. I know a teenage boy that needs, that may not, this may not, you know, click with him. It's changing these garments. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. It's like, a, a, it's like 
jeans that have holes in them and they've, they've just been so run down that, that now it's time to change them. You roll them up and ch- they're changed. Jesus will one day bring history to its intended end and it will be changed like a dirty, worn out pair of clothes. We, we get the same picture in Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 17. When he opened the sixth seal... Jesus, when he opens the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? I think we often forget just how fragile all of this is. We, we've got politicians and, and we've got activists that think that we can control the weather and we control the temperature. And, and we often forget just how weak and finite we are. Jesus upholds everything by the word of his power. But one day he's going to cease upholding this universe and it's all going to come apart but he will remain the eternal, self-existent, unchanging one. But on that day, who will you be found trusting in? Will you be trusting in your money? Will you be trusting in your health? Surely you won't be found trusting in government leaders and scientists. Psalm 102 was meant as an encouragement. The superscript over the psalm says that it's a prayer of one afflicted. When sorrows and trials arise, the saints can cry out to Yahweh. Yahweh who came in the flesh creator, sustainer, unchanging, eternal. This is no angel. This is no created being. This is the one true God. And this is the one to whom those who are afflicted and in sorrow can pray to. Jesus is superior to the angels because he is the one true God. That's what verses 10 through 12 tell us. But Jesus is superior to the angels in verses 13 through 14 because he is glorified along with God. He's glorified along with God The final quote in this section is from Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament chapter in the New Testament. And Psalm 110 verse 1 is the most quoted verse in the New Testament. Jesus used it to stump the religious leaders whose son is the Messiah, whose son is the Christ And they say, well, he's the son of David. And he looks at Psalm 110, verse 1, and he he says, "If, if he's David's son, how can David call him Lord? They decide they don't want to have anything else to do with Jesus. They don't want to ask him any more questions. But we've already answered this question. We've already seen the answer in Hebrews. He's truly a man. He is descended from David. He is David's son. 
but he is also truly God. He is David's Lord. The, the religious leaders of Israel's day, they, they, had no, they had no category for the incarnation, though they should have. But we understand that, that in his incarnation, the eternal second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, he took on human flesh and he, he became truly a man. If verses 10 through 12 demonstrate that Jesus is God, verse 13 reminds us that there are distinct persons in the Godhead. So he is God. But verse 13 says that he sits at the right hand of God. We can be reminded of John chapter 1 verse 1 that Jesus is both God and with God. We confess one God who has eternally existed in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Not one person who manifests himself in three different roles, like he's taking off a mask and putting on a new one. Nor do we confess three separate gods. Not like the Mormons. We must be very specific and clear on this. We confess, as the scriptures have revealed, one God, one essence, one being. And in this one being, there are three distinct, though not inseparable persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. These three are one God. Verse 10 of Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is Yahweh. Verse 13 tells us that Jesus sits at the right hand, the place of power, next to Yahweh. We've got to be theologians. We've got to be theologians. Bad theology is filling our churches. And when our churches are filled with bad theology, bad teaching and bad practice are going to flow out. Again, this is not something for those ivory tower theologians. This is something for you. We confess one God in three persons. Your very salvation depends on that. Because our salvation is Trinitarian. The use of Psalm 110 here, again, is to demonstrate that Jesus is superior to the angels. He's superior to the angels because he has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. To which of the angels has this ever been said? This psalm, it's... It's expanded in places like Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel sees a vision of the Son of Man who approaches the Ancient of Days and receives a kingdom. But we can see it again in Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. John says, I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, this is God the Father, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals, and I saw a mighty angel, this strong, powerful angel, proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Not even this mighty angel None of the heavenly beings, none of the heavenly hosts can do anything. And so John says, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy. No one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. 
Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This is very significant. This is highly significant because Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8, Yahweh says, I am Yahweh, that is my name. My glory I give to no other. God is set apart from his creation. He is holy, holy, holy. He dwells in inapproachable light. And he says, I don't share my glory with anyone else. And yet here, we see someone who is worthy to approach God. And he takes the scroll from the right hand of God. And when he had taken the scroll... All the heavenly beings fall down on their face before him. And John says, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. The whole of creation worships God and this other person, the Lamb. Don't miss this. Jesus is exalted and glorified along with the Father. Not because he is some kind of great angel. Not because he's the first thing that God created. But because he is in his very being the divine Son of God. Verses 5 through 12, they escalate and they culminate in this verse 13. He is the Davidic king. He is the one true God. He has made full atonement for sin. And thus, he has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is not said about any angels. This cannot be said about any angels. God will not give his glory to another. God will not share it. To give glory and worship to a created being, even the greatest of created beings, is idolatry. To God alone belongs worship. To God alone belongs all the glory and the power and the praise forever and ever and ever. We cannot have such a low view of God that we we can imagine a creature sitting down with him on his throne. Only the Son deserves this honor. No angels, no creatures, no created beings, only the Son. We're going to see Psalm 110 throughout the book of Hebrews. 
But what about angels? Verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Again, we saw this in verse 7. They are commanded to worship and they are ministers. They're servants. God sends them forth to do what he, he desires them to do. They minister. Jesus is the king. He sits on the throne. He is exalted. He will never change. His years will have no end. He is the one to whom belongs all the worship. The angels are ministering spirits. But notice to whom they minister. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This anticipates chapter 2, verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Beloved, consider your position. Consider your position. The Son of God came to help the offspring of Abraham, not angels. Consider that there is no plan of Redemption for the fallen angels. There is no sacrifice to atone for the sins of the devil and his angels. There is no hope, no peace, no joy, only the dread of everlasting judgment. But for mankind, there is a Savior. There is a Savior who is truly God and truly man. He has made purification for sin by his death on the cross. He has conquered sin and death by his resurrection from the dead. He has ascended and he has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high where he intercedes for the saints. And he is coming again to judge the world and to glorify his people. This is held out for you. It's not held out for the angels. It's held out for you. This is the day of salvation. And it's held out for you. What are you waiting for? What, what more could possibly be given than the Son of God slain for sinners. Some concluding thoughts of this chapter that we've been looking at. We do not worship angels. We don't worship angels. In fact, twice in the book of Revelation, the Apostle John is so filled with with wonder at what he sees that he falls down to worship an angel. And an angel says, do not worship me, worship God. We do not worship angels. That alone should, should get rid of this false notion that Jesus is some kind of created being. Because you do not worship created beings. You only worship God. A second thing, believers do not become angels when they die. I still remember a, a pastor many years ago talking about a, a, a dear friend of his who died. He said that she became an angel. That's a downgrade. That's a downgrade. That, that's a demotion. We don't become angels when we die. We are glorified and we become transformed into the image of the Son of God. That is better. And as sons of God who inherit salvation, we will be greater than angels. And 
Paul even tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3, that the saints will judge the angels. That's our position as believers in Christ. He is superior to the angels, and one day when he comes and he glorifies the saints, we will be greater than the angels as well. And our joy will surpass that of the angels. And we will know God in a way that no angel can ever know God. But maybe you'd admit that you've been putting too much emphasis on angels. Maybe you're one of those people that's been infatuated with angels. You've got paintings of them around the house. You've got statues around the house. You're, you're in wonder at angels, but you haven't been infatuated with Jesus. Maybe you've even fallen into thinking about his being greater than angels, but maybe a little less than God. I hope that this passage of Scripture is a corrective for us. As interesting as angels may be, Jesus is infinitely better. Infinitely better. He is superior in every way. He is lovelier than the angels, more powerful than the angels. He is worthy of worship, He's worthy of our lives. As the hymn that we sang earlier said, Jesus shines brighter. Jesus shines purer than all the angels heaven can boast. Put all the, the, the angels together, put them all in one spot. Jesus is infinitely brighter than them. Jesus is infinitely greater than them. He is the promised Davidic Messiah to whom God has promised the nations. But even more amazingly, he's the one true God. And he is glorified along with the Father. Consider this Jesus. Consider this Jesus this morning. Maybe, maybe you haven't thought of him in this way. Maybe you haven't really dwelt on on his nature and, and who he is, that he is the creator and he is, he's infinite and eternal and he, he is unchanging. Maybe you never thought about that. Maybe you never thought about Jesus, the Son of God, seated at the right hand of the Father, glorified. Consider Jesus today. Consider Jesus. May you be infatuated with him. May your affections flow out of you towards him alone. Be consumed with love and adoration for him. You can't make too much about Jesus. Take our worship and, and multiply it by 10 trillion. It's not enough. He deserves all of our worship. Look to Jesus. Turn away from your sinful rebellion. Turn away from the things that this world is holding out to you and offers to you and promises you. It's not enough. It's empty. It's worthless. It's passing. Run to Jesus and you will find in him the perfect Savior. And he will save all those who come to him. Let's pray together. Father, forgive me for my paltry words that do not do justice to the fact that Jesus is far infinitely superior than anything else in all of creation. Help us to See him with the eyes of faith as we look at the scriptures. God, I pray that your spirit will take these words 
and with power, with divine power, affect our hearts. God, for those who are here who have never trusted in Christ, may your spirit open their eyes to see the wonders of Christ. And God, for my brothers and sisters here, I pray that we will have a new vision of Jesus. Where we have elevated anything else above him, we confess and we repent. God, help us to love Jesus more. Help us to know him more. Help us to pursue him more. And may we be obedient to him in every area of our lives. And as we look to him, as we, we pursue him, may we take this good news about who Jesus is and what he's done out to the nations so that they might share in our gladness that they might know true and lasting joy. We thank you, God, that you've been merciful to us. We are sinners, and yet you have so graciously given us your son. I pray that your word will have its full effect in our lives today. And that in everything that we, we think and everything we, we feel and everything we do, that we will glorify Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.